0: Cindy, I as you know, I travel on the ferry every week, but this morning I'd like to take you on my magic carpet for a few minutes, and I'd um, like to take you out of this sanctuary, and I'm going to transport you for a few minutes to a theology classroom, okay? So we're going to go to um, seminary for a little bit this morning, If I take you to a theology classroom, and we're going to study, we're going to a class on preaching. And we're going to go to a, a class which is known as, Hermeneutics 101. You got that? Okay, it should be up on the screen. There we go. So welcome to Hermeneutics 101. That's the class you're in this morning. And in Greek mythology, Hermes was the messenger of the gods. And he brought the message from God who lived on Mount Olympus down to the people. So hermeneutics, if you're in seminary, is the idea of taking the message out of God's word and bringing it to where we are and who we are and where we live today. And it's, hermeneutics is getting the accurate meaning and then the interpretation, the application into our lives. So that's where you are this morning. You may remember what the Apostle Paul wrote to young Timothy. He said, do your best to present yourself to God as one who is approved. A workman who does not need to be ashamed. Who correctly handles the word of truth. That literally says in Greek, who cuts the word of God straight. Now, what was Paul in his, in his earlier life, what was his job? A tent maker. And so you see, he had to learn to cut cloth and leather straight. So he didn't waste anything. So when it comes to the word of God, he has to learn to cut it straight. So here's what we're going to do. We start as always with the Bible. Okay? We got the Bible up there. Alright? And when we read the Bible, we need to realize that it was addressed to its history and its time. The Bible is not a, um, a detached book of philosophy. The Bible was written into the people in the time to which he wrote. You need to always understand that. So when we encounter a text or a story, it is always written in its culture, into its culture. But we also believe that the Bible speaks to us now. It is in our time, in our culture. And so it's for our time, and one of our songs this morning talked about raising up a generation. We believe that the Bible as God's word speaks to us now in our generation. So we're always asking, what does the Bible say to us today? Now, i got to tell you, the great temptation... And the more evangelical and the more conservative groups are, the more that we, mis- we make this mistake. It's what we sometimes do is we take the Bible's words, whatever it is, out of its context, and we simply bring it straight across to our generation. You got that? Like that. Okay? Isn't it neat? And we drop it into our culture, which is so vastly different. Most times when we do this... We do violence to what the Bible is actually saying. But our answer is, but it's in the Bible. For example, for many, many years, slave owners in Britain and the United States and in other countries found support for the ownership of slaves because they simply said, it's in the Bible. Uh, Women are told not to wear gold earrings or jewelry. It's in the Bible. The Bible also says, ladies, that when you come to church, you should have your heads covered. Some of you were raised, perhaps, in a church culture that did that. The more conservative, again, our culture, the more we go back to saying, but it's in the Bible. Other texts declare that um, women should be silent in church and not teach men. So, Pastor Cindy, I don't know what you do with stuff like that, because it's in So, you see, if we simply go straight across from the Bible and its text and its time to our time and our culture, we we, we really struggle with what do you do with stuff like that. So, here is what you have to do. This is what hermeneutics is. Here's the next diagram. Okay, and I'll explain it to you. We have a truth that's in a cultural application. But, see this yellow line? Above it it says eternal, and below it it says cultural. So what you've got to learn to do is you've got to take a truth in its time and history, and you've got to say, what is the eternal truth in that? And you bring the truth as it were out of its culture, across that line to what is eternal. Got it? And you bring it across to our day, and then you apply it into our life and our time. That may mean its application may look very, very different from what it did 2,500 years ago. But it's how we will apply it today. Very simple example, an easy one. Uh, was it um, at Alfred's house one night? I hope you don't. Can I use you, Alfred, as a my living working example? Okay, thank you. He doesn't know what I'm going to do, but never mind. Um, I got to Alfred's house one night. He invited me for supper. He picked me up at the ferry and came for supper. Rosita had a lovely uh, meal ready. I got to tell you, when I got in the door, no one said. Here's Pastor Tom, let's run and take off his shoes and socks and go wash his feet. Nobody did that. But you know what? That's in the Bible. Jesus says in John 13, I've given you an example, as I've done to you, so you do to one another. When I went to Alfred's house, nobody did that in Alfred's house. It's not very biblical. But it's in the Bible. What do you do with that? Well, obviously, the heart of that story is about serving and um, Alfred Rosita and their girls served me in, very, in other kind of ways that were very appropriate to our culture. This process of how do we bring the truth out of its time into an eternal, transcendent is what it's called—application down to our time is vital when we come to this sixth word we study today, which is actually in Hebrew, it's only two words in the commandment: No killing, no killing. Now, instantly, we're tempted to make this crucial mistake. We lift this command out of, its, out of its time and context, and we drop it in our world, and we say, but how does this relate to things like capital punishment? What is it related to war? What about abortion? What about stem cell research? How does this address euthanasia? Very, very complex ethical issues today. And we simply say, the Bible says no killing in the, in the Bible but you need to know there's about 10 different Hebrew words that describe different kinds of killing. Smite, to attack, to slaughter, to kill in war. There are 18 different offenses for which you can get the death penalty. The Old Testament. 18 different offenses. There were cities of refugees that were called for incidents where you accidentally killed someone and the killer could go for protection and safety. So you see, it is too simple, too simplistic rather, simply to lift no killing out of the Bible and drop it into our society and say, what do we do? What do we do with that? You've got to look. start by looking at the heart of the commandment and ask why. And I believe that we can do this by turning the challenge of the commandment inside out, as it were. We turn it from the negative to the positive. We'll do this uh, next Sunday also. And at the heart of this biblical challenge of no killing is a very positive truth. At the heart of our being is a sacred reality. It, it, is, it means that we bear in our lives the stamp of the image of God. That was led beautifully for us this morning on our worship. And that's the lovely song, He Knows My Name. It's exactly what it's about. So now I'm going to move you out of the seminary classroom, get on my magic carpet, um, and I want to take you to a garden. It's a very special garden. It's a sacred place. And when we examine this command, no kidding, no killing, you've got to walk into this green, lush garden to understand the depth of the unique meaning of life that comes from the breath of God. It says in this garden, The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. The questions really never leave us. Who am I? Where did I come from? Where am I going? The English poet Matthew Arnold writes it this way in a poem called The Buried Life. He says, But often in the world's most sacred street, but often in the din of desire, there rises an unspeakable desire after the knowledge of the buried life. A thirst... To spend our fire and restless force in tracking our true original goal. A longing to inquire into this mystery of the heart which beats so wild, so deep in us to know whence our lives come and where they go. What do we learn about life? Let me start by saying that we must value the sacredness of our own identity. Genesis 1.27, I've touched on before with you. Um, It's really the heartbeat of this. It's three lines of Hebrew poetry. And each line has got four beats to it. The lines are this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Let me suggest in that that you find three profound things that are in this profound mystery of being made in the image of God. First of all, we're given the gift of identity. People talk about trying to find themselves. The truth is, we really only know who we are in our relatedness to God, not in our relatedness to other people. The search for many people in identity is sociological. Who am I in my relatedness to other people? But really is, who am I in my relatedness to God? That's the only question that really matters. Again, that song, I have a maker who knows my name. We need to see ourselves as a seamless tapestry of body and soul and spirit where we're woven together in a single identity. We cannot take ourselves apart from this unique wholeness. We're also given the gift of sanctity. Life is not an accident. Life is stamped with the stamp of God. We, we bear His mark and His very being is impressed upon us. And then we're given the gift of sexuality. Male and female He created them. We're made male and female, which is far, far more than a physical reality. Maleness and femaleness is woven into who we are as whole people. I think one of the very real tragedies in the church, in history, has been the separation of our physical nature from our spiritual nature. And that's platonic dualism. Especially the divorce of our sexuality from our spirituality. We do not understand that our discipleship and following Christ also embraces our sexuality. The church in history did not know what to do with the fact that we are physical and sexual people as well as people of the Spirit. Augustine, sadly, said that, that when um, husband and woman and marriage made love, the Holy Spirit left the bedroom. We forget that the Bible devotes an entire book to sexuality, and to lovemaking on a wedding night. It's called the Song Final Songs. And next week we're going to unpack part of that, when we look at the, uh, the study on um, do not commit adultery, what it means to have safe and great sex within the wholeness of our marriage. It's what I call love without lust, and passion without pornography. And so you see, being made in the image of God Involves so us as male and female. That didn't come after the fall. It was part of the fall. But it can be broken. It can be distorted. We can murder ourselves in a thousand acts of doubt and self-destruction. You can start to say over and over again in the silence and in the dark places of depression. I am no good. I am nothing. I am worthless. Can I tell you that I have been there? I have been there. It is a dark and it is a lonely place. Until I heard someone knew my name. Again. Lifted me out of that pit. Have you ever silently killed yourself there? I have. And that silent step of emotional suicide can be, if we're not careful, a hint to an even greater and irreversible tragedy. The last lung of the ladder we stand on as human beings is hope. And when we lose hope we stand in the quicksand of despair. It is only a short step from emotional suicide to acting it out. You will remember two or three weeks ago out of Port Coquitlam a 15 year old committed suicide over the tragedy of being bullied in some of the schools that she was in. And it appeared on the internet. And it went all through the country, in fact, all over our world. I think her name was Amanda. Is that right? Amanda. That's a tragedy. That's a tragedy. Four young people every week in our country commit suicide. I buried a young man who hung himself in his garage one day. And I said to the 600 young people who turned up at his funeral, don't do in the dark what you cannot undo when the light returns. I don't know what's going on in your life right now, particularly if you're in your 20s or somewhere around there. Maybe you're in a deep well of depression, which I have struggled in. Maybe at times you feel the light of God is eclipsed in your life and darkness comes over you. I plead with you. I plead with you. Do you know in the depths of your soul that someone knows your name. And you are valued more highly than you can ever imagine. Each of our lives is a unique treasure. And we need to value the imago Dei, the image of God. Look deeply into the mirror of God's love this morning. And know without a shred of doubt that you are valued and you are loved. No killing starts with ourselves. And then if we move on, we must value the sacred relationships within the community of faith. We we trust by the grace of God that none of us will ever come to the place where rage and anger that lurks within us rises with some violent force that we would break this clear rule of God, no killing. But if that's all of the word says to us this morning, we're not listening to its deeper words. There are more subtle forms of murder that do not need a knife or a gun. They don't leave any bloodstains. There is no corpse. But I'll tell you, there is still a victim. The original command, no killing, you remember, was given to a nation that waged war on God's orders. They drove other nations out. But within their own borders, among their own people, the covenant people of God, there was to be a superior conduct, a new relationship, a higher ethic, and there was no killing. There was to be the highest regard of life for those within the nation. Now we bring that across the years to our church. And we must say to us, honestly, there will be no killing with words, no homicide with gossip. No murder with sarcasm used as a weapon. No association with anger. There are biblical ways to disagree. There are biblical ways to resolve dispute and disagreement. And we must find and learn to use them carefully. So Jesus speaks into this commandment as we would expect. And here's what he says. You've heard it that we said to people long ago, Don't murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. That's what Jesus says. But I tell you, that anyone who is angry with his brother, can I add sister, will be subject to judgment. Anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. I say this very sadly to us, in the many, many years, that Harry and I have been in churches, as pastors and wives, we've seen from people, behavior to each other. We've seen hurtful things said at church meetings. You may have had the saying, Why is the church the only organization that kills us wounded? Well, frankly, I think other organizations do also. But that's not the point. The church is to be a safe place. This is to be a sanctuary which values and protects the sacred image of God in each one of us. We are brothers and sisters together in Christ. But even underneath that, there's a more fundamental truth. We are people in whom the image of God is being restored and renewed. We are being transformed, Corinthians says, from image to image to image into the same glory. And so we are called in the highest way to value and guard the sacred image of God in each one of our lives. Respect and dignity at the deepest level is to be expected and exercised. The image of God is in each person you see here. Each person is to be valued for their own identity. We are not to raise our voices in anger against them. No biting words that will leave us hurt and bleeding. We are to value in this church each person we see. Whether we agree with them or not. We are to teach each other with godly respect and value. So next time we even think, even think, about raising our voices in anger to someone with whom we worship. Stop and remember. There will be no killing here. No killing with words. No killing with gossip. No killing with hearsay. No killing with sarcasm. This has to be a safe and a sacred place. Agreed? Let's move it on. We will strive for the dignity of all humanity we live in an aggressive society of violence towards the unborn, towards the elderly, apathy towards the weak, the disenfranchised, those who are silent and perhaps can't speak for themselves. But those who have heard the voice of God that came from the fire in the mountain must raise the bar about the meaning and the value of life. If we who have life in Christ do not do that, who else will? Who will speak into the silence? So today we live in a world of what I'll call spent sacred forces. Our society has lost touch with the sacredness of life. The loss of sacred, by the way, means the almost total disappearance in the collective consciousness of our modern society, of a sense of a sacred presence in which we live and move and have our being. Sometimes we seem to be little less than moral pygmies. So let's look at things like abortion. It's the loss of the sacred that plunges us into the abortion debate. When we lose the commitment that humanity is created, in we lose the divine perspective on the value of life from its beginning. So when the unplanned life is an unwanted interruption in our schedule, it can simply be flushed out. Abortion is not really a medical issue. It is a theological and a spiritual issue in the sacredness of life. What about euthanasia? It's the loss of the sacred that one day could, could allow someone to come and visit me and say, Tom, we had a committee meeting about you last week. And frankly, we think you've lived long enough now. And you know what? We have voted and you're getting too old. And so for our society, Tom, you're no longer an asset. In fact, you've become a liability. You're costing us too much in health care. So we had a meeting about you last week. Guess what? We voted and you lost. Your time is up. What if this becomes our brave new world? What about sex and sexuality? The loss of the sacred robs marriage of its one true unique identity, which is the integrity of sexual intimacy. When we lose sight of the fact that we're made in the image of God, sexuality loses its sacred connection to marriage. And sexual intercourse becomes an interesting and a satisfying but often selfish encounter between two bodies to gratify, gratify our own pleasure. Sex is not something we do. Sex is who we are. We need to remember that God created it before the fall, not after it. We'll come back to that next week again. What about technology? It's the loss of the sacred that gives unlimited potential of technology, but without the guidance of morality. The fact that we know how to do things because we have the technology... It's not enough often for the moral reason to do it. So we end up with the ethics of pragmatism and the amoral philosophy of utilitarianism, which simply means the end justifies the means. What about the loss of the sacred in suicide? It's no wonder that suicide is one of the highest killers of young people in North America. And I read, it's the leading cause of death in China. When life is merely utilitarian. Not only can we murder others, we can murder ourselves. Every death of a child should bring tears to our eyes. I watched the CB News, CBC News last night. And it was on a brief clip on Sierra Leone, which is the, one of the poorest countries in our world. And it said in Sierra Leone that one child in five does not make it to the age of five. One child in every five... Do not make it to the age of five. Every child who dies of hunger and disease should move us to tears because the the image of God is being trampled on. That sacred stamp, that holy imprint is violated. So God calls His covenant people, His holy people to be the guardians of this divine mark. But we've become today a society of spent sacred forces. Today we are far, far from that sacred garden where life was originally formed and molded in the image of God. We are far from the place where the fingerprints of God left their gentle reminders on our very being that each one of us is fearfully and wonderfully made. But we can't turn back to there. An angel was placed there to guard the way back. So what does it mean today, no killing. To live with the renewed awareness of that sacredness of life. To feel the unseen stamp of God deep within our lives. How do we reach such a sacred understanding of life? And here is the final cosmic irony. Here is the ultimate satire of the plot in the Bible. We get to this realization of the sacred gift of life through a murder Jesus made in the image of God who came and gave himself for the sins of our world and chose to become the victim of a murder to do so. He allowed himself to be betrayed and captured in a garden. He allowed death and murder to be his way back into the life of the Father. He returned to the Father so that the breath of the Spirit could come again to earth. And just as God bent in the garden and breathed into Adam, And he became a living being. So once again God desires to bend down and breathe into the dusty shell of our lives. And our flesh starts to breathe in a new way as the fresh, clean air of the Spirit. Fills our lungs and souls and we become a living soul made renewed in the image of God. This fresh breath from the heart of God makes us hear what we've never heard before. To see what we've never seen before. To feel what we've never felt before. And to live with a sense of the sacredness such as we have never lived before. Please stand with me.